Galatians chapter 1, 11 through 17. Galatians 1, 11 through 17. For I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. The source of the message determines the quality of the message. The words come to this address tomorrow at 10 a.m. will have a different kind of, a, of effect on people depending on whether it's a newspaper ad for a sales promotion at your local clothing store, or if it's a text from a friend, or if it's a phone call from your child's teacher, or if it's on a court order for your arrest. The source will determine the, the power of the message. For that matter, the, the source of a message determines the seriousness, the validity, the truthfulness, and the accuracy of a message. I laugh at headlines from Babylon B, but headlines on major newspapers sometimes make me cry. What my friends tell me about a health issue and what uh, major medical journals say about the same health issue come with it different levels of validity. The, the accuracy of what my son tells me about what happened at school and what his teacher tells me about the same event is going to vary according to the source. We understand that. And Paul says in today's passage that it makes all the difference in the world that his gospel was given to him directly from Jesus Christ. He will try to convince us that a gospel delivered to him personally from the Lord Jesus makes it a gospel with, a, with, a, with no higher level of credibility. We've just begun a study through the letter of Galatians, as you all know. And if you remember, Paul first began this book stating his apostolic credentials and praying that the Galatians would receive grace and peace from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This grace has been manifested in the highest measure through the death of Christ so that we would be rescued from the power and influence of this present age. In chapter 1, 6 through 10, Paul next explained why the Galatians need grace and peace so badly. The Galatians were thinking about turning to another gospel that false teachers had smuggled into the church. And the false, the false gospel these Judaizers were spreading was no minor distortion. The, the Galatians were drifting from a gospel of grace to a gospel of works, a gospel of merit, which is no gospel at all. 
Those who preach it and believe it will be cursed by God forever, Paul said. And finally, in verse 10, in response to being attacked as a man-pleaser, Paul said that the anathema that he proclaimed twice is the evidence that he's not afraid of saying what needs to be said concerning the gospel. In today's passage, in Galatians 1, chapter uh, verses 11 through 17, Paul argues from personal history why you can be certain that his gospel of grace instead of the gospel of law is the true gospel. He defends the credibility of the gospel he first gave to the Galatians by defending the credibility of his apostleship. Because the truth of the gospel and the credentials of Paul as an authoritative messenger of the gospel are woven together here as, a, as two thick strands of a rope pulling the Galatians out of a dark hole they've fallen into. The mark of a true apostle was to have personally known the resurrected Christ, but Jesus had already ascended years before Paul was a Christian. Paul therefore reminds the, the Galatians how his gospel and apostleship is legitimate and credible. Verse 11 and 12 contain the thesis statement of the gospel's divine credibility. And then from verses 13 all the way through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul elaborates and he provides support and evidence for his thesis. In today's verses, however, Paul calls the first of his two witnesses to the bench to testify on behalf of his gospel and of apostolic calling. His two witnesses we, we will hear speak were his radically transformed life and his independent authority from Jerusalem. Let's look at point number one in verses 11 and 12, the divine source of the gospel. In verses 11 and 12, we find Paul's thesis statement for what he's about to write all the way to chapter 2, verse 14. Paul says in verse 11 and 12, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. If you remember from a couple Sundays ago, a scholars surmise that false teachers in Galatia, known as the Judaizers, were telling the Galatian churches that Paul received his gospel indirectly from the Jerusalem, Jerusalem apostles. Paul received his gospel from Peter and, and John and James. And once Paul received that gospel from Jerusalem, in order to avoid offending the Gentiles, he modified that gospel. And he started preaching a message that anybody could receive Christ by faith alone. In other words, Paul, in order to placate Gentile sensitivities, he removed the requirements of the law one needed to keep in addition to believing in Christ to be saved. The Judaizers, on the other hand, were, were making up a story to the Galatians that their gospel was the true gospel. The Judaizers were saying, we received it from the Jerusalem apostles and we never changed it. We kept it faithful to the law. We kept our gospel Jewish. And so Paul immediately 
responded in the very opening verse of the book with a response to that false charge. Look what he says in verse 1. As I remind you, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Verses 11 and 12 are kind of an, an elaboration of verse 1. Paul is saying, I, I'm not playing telephone here. My gospel came straight from Jesus, face to face, like a personal handshake. This isn't my personal gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 11 and 12 also explains verse 10. The reason Paul felt no need to please his, uh, his audience and, and the reason for his new identity as a slave of Christ were both rooted in the gospel itself. Paul isn't preaching a human gospel in order to please people. The very reason that he cared so little for human acceptance was because of the very nature of the gospel that he preached. And so Paul states what the fundamental nature of the gospel is not in verse 11. And then he says what the fundamental nature of the gospel is in verse 12. What is it the gospel? Verse 11. He says, the gospel which, I'm, which I am proclaiming as good news, it is not according to man. It is not the product of human innovation. It doesn't have a human source. It doesn't come from human ideas or customs. The gospel is not a product of human reasoning. It's not according to a human standard. A gospel that requires human performance, action, obedience, ritualism, moral, moralism, merit, to get right with God, that is a human gospel. That kind of no gospel does originate from man. A merit-based religious system is how fallen sinners naturally and intuitively think. Justification by faith plus works of the law plus circumcision plus anything is a product of human reasoning. Keeping laws to earn yourself a place into heaven comes from human standards. If I'm good enough, God will accept me. If I make this sacrifice, if I perform this ritual, God will let me into heaven. Every religion not named Christianity is a various form of this kind of human rationale and thinking. Adding something to the gospel feels so right, humanly speaking. So when you tell people that no good work could ever save them, no matter how many good works they do, when you tell other people no ritual, no acts of pious devotion can save them because of the depth of their sinfulness, they either don't understand what you're saying or they get extremely offended. Contradicting and works-based gospel is unnatural to humanity. Paul says that my gospel isn't a human gospel because my gospel doesn't include a requirement for works. That kind of gospel would be according to man. Fish do not have the ability to run and jump. Dogs cannot drive cars and figure out geometry proofs. And men do not have the natural ability to conceive of a gospel that it excludes our works as a basis for acceptance with God. 
The nature of the gospel is not, is not human, verse 11. It is divine, verse 12. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 12 explains the last part of verse 11. Paul's gospel is not a human gospel because he did not receive it from a human being, but through, as the phrase at the end of verse 12 says, a revelation of Jesus Christ. The source of his gospel was not human, and neither were the means by which he received the gospel human either. Paul did not get his gospel from the apostles as if they were the final source, nor did he get his gospel through the apostles as if Jesus Jesus gave the, the, the gospel to the twelve, and they in turn gave it to Paul. Paul is no second-rate apostle. In the same way, the twelve apostles originally received the gospel directly from Jesus Christ, so did he. This phrase, the revelation of Jesus Christ, refers to his direct... <coughs> sorry. It refers to his direct encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the way to Damascus, on the way to per persecute the church, first recorded in Acts 9. Acts 9, 3, 3 through 6 says uh, this about that encounter. And as he was traveling, it happened that as he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what to do. It is in this Damascus encounter where Paul was converted from Judaism to Christianity. And it was in this encounter where he was given his apostolic calling. It is on the road to Damascus where Paul received the gospel of justification by faith alone, along with his core theology we see in the letters of Paul in the New Testament. Paul's gospel and Paul's theology, written in the New Testament, were given to him directly and personally from the Lord Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. Paul says, the reason I no longer live to please others is because the gospel's divine power has transformed me from being a slave of man into being a slave of Christ. It is because of this gospel, according to Jesus Christ, and not according to man, that I no longer live according to man's shallow ideals and expectations. I live according to the pleasure of my Savior. The reason I do not tinker or adjust or take out or add to the gospel I first preached to you, Galatians, is because I received this gospel from Jesus himself. If I had received it from Jerusalem, I may have been tempted to alter it. But because I got it from Christ, oh, I dare not change that message Jesus gave me. You see, a gospel of Christ alone, through faith alone, is the result of divine logic. Prideful sinners 
are incapable of coming up with a religious system where every blessing of heaven cannot be earned, where every promise of God is an undeserved gift that we can only receive by faith alone, we think we are too good for that kind of divine charity. We're too self-righteous to think that our sinfulness disqualifies us from the possibilities that something we could do could merit any sort of goodness from God. Next, in verses 13 and 14, Paul gives his first piece of evidence that he received the gospel through a a revelation given by Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second point of the morning, the gospel's transforming power, verses 13 and 14. In verses 13 and 14, Paul describes his former life as a Pharisee to show that only a personal revelation of Christ can explain his gospel and ministry. There is no other more plausible explanation of Paul's 180-degree transformation than his Damascus Road encounter with the risen Lord. Paul says in verse 13 that he hated the church. He says in verse 13, You have heard of my former conduct in Judaism. Paul was raised as a Pharisee, and so what that means is that when it came to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was obsessed with the law. The law was his burning, burning obsession from his youth. And, and he, he earned a good salary as a Pharisee studying the law. His commitment to the law as a Pharisee gave Paul a comfortable life. His parents were faithful Jews, and therefore he was circumcised on the eighth day, as Philippians 3 tells us. He was from the prestigious tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, not a Jewish proselyte like many of the Judaizers were. Paul's entire world, from a baby, like a fish in water, was Judaism. That was the fish tank that he lived in. There was nothing in Paul's past that would have tempted him to compromise the law in order to gain sympathy with the Gentiles. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3 again. And in verse 13, Paul says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. This is how much Paul hated the church. The word destroy used here is a very intense word. Josephus uses the same word to note the burning of villages in Idumea. And so to Paul, the the church of God was a perversion of Judaism. There was nothing redeemable about the church of God. There was nothing about the church of God that, that was common with Judaism. So his zeal for Judaism spilled over into persecuting the church. Paul said in Philippians 3 again, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Why did Paul hate the church so much? Why did Paul hate the church so much? Well, number one, he hated the church because the church said that Jesus, who was cursed by God on the cross, the church was saying that this was Israel's Messiah. And he hated the church because of verse 14. Because Paul loved the law. He loved the Old Testament law. Verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. 
Paul was a rising star in Judaism. He was the young Tiger Woods of Judaism. He was advancing beyond many of his fellow classmates. And what is this what does this mean, he was advancing in Judaism? Well, the second part of verse 14 expounds on that. Paul says, I was far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That phrase, the traditions of my fathers, is just a synonym for the Old Testament law. Paul loved the law with a burning zeal. Paul said in Philippians 3, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless. Paul hated the church because the church loved this cursed Messiah on a cross. And Paul hated the church because she proclaimed a law-free gospel. The church, to Paul, had exchanged the works of the law, the very centerpiece of Judaism. They had replaced that with faith in a bloody Savior. The glory of God's people had always been the law. It had always been the, the stone tablets God had given to Moses. And now the church was placing this bloody dead guy as its primary message. For the apostle Paul, law-keeping was the foundation of his righteousness. Law-keeping was the foundation of righteousness for all of God's people, he thought. The church's gospel of grace seemed like it was cutting off access to God for God's people through this message of Christ. And this is the point that Paul is making. He was the very last person in the world who would personally want to preach a law-free gospel. Why would I want to do that? I love the law. My life was the law. If anyone would be most prone to adding the works of the law to faith in Jesus Christ, it would have been Paul. From a human perspective, out of all the apostles, out of all the 12 apostles, the apostle Paul would have been the biggest supporter to add works of the law to faith in Christ. Paul was the best of men and he was the worst of men. And Paul's conversion, it proves a couple of things. Paul's conversion proves a couple of things. The first thing Paul's conversion proves is that there is no one good enough who does not desperately need the, God, the gospel of grace. You see, from the perspective of Judaism in the first century, there weren't many people more righteous than Paul. There weren't many people more devoted to the law than Paul was. If anybody knew the futility of trying to earn acceptance before God through law-keeping and Jewish traditions, it was Paul. Take it from him. From a Jewish perspective, there was nobody more moral, there was nobody more good, more righteous than him. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9, however, that when he gained the, when he received the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ, the law in comparison became lost. The law became his biggest liability. Compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, the law turned into rubbish for him. It turned into refuse, scraps for mangly scavenger dogs of the streets. Paul is saying, you want to add your smelly compost to Christ? 
Christ isn't enough, so you think adding the refuse of your moralism to Jesus will somehow help you before God on Judgment Day? Paul says, I of all people in Israel can tell you, I've been there, I've done that, and there is nothing in the law or in our actions or in our works of piety that could somehow become the basis for your acceptance with God. The very best of men are in desperate need of the grace of the gospel. Paul's conversion proves that. Paul's conversion proves a second truth. Paul's conversion proves a second truth, and it's this. His conversion proves that there is no one bad enough that the gospel of grace cannot fully save. You see, when Paul was persecuting the church, when he was, to, when he was trying to destroy God's church, to him, it was a demonstration of the highest level of devotion to God's law that you could achieve. But this was the reality. It was actually the very worst crime you could possibly commit against God. The hottest place in hell is reserved for those who persecute the church. The hottest place in hell isn't the one who betrays other people and betrays other friends. The lowest piece in hell is the person who betrayed Jesus Christ named Judas. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was on a road leading to hell. He ravaged Christians that Jesus bled and died for. He put them in prison in order to kill them. He was an eyewitness of Stephen being stoned to death. What, he, what happens to you when you witness a crime committed by somebody else, people that are your friends, people that are that your associates, like Paul was to the Pharisees when they killed Stephen? What do you call that if you just watch? You call it accessory. An accessory to murder. And this was, this was who Paul was. He was a persecutor of the church. He was a murderer of the church. He was the worst of the worst. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, that he was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. That means if the gospel has the power to save Paul, it has the power to save you. If you turn from your sins and you trust that Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins, God will forgive you. He will wrap you in his son's righteousness. And then on the basis of Jesus' perfect life, he will declare you righteous forever. If you believe in the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead, then God gives you the perfect righteousness of the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead for you. And God does that by imputation. That means Christ's righteousness is external to you. It's legal. It's forensic. It's a righteousness that you can never mess up. It means that you can never lose that righteousness because through your own unrighteousness. Yes, God gives you, gives us an internal righteousness called sanctification within you, but that can never be the basis of your relationship with God 
because the sanctification God gives, gives inside of you is never a perfect sanctification. Your heart is mixed with good and evil after God saves you. That means if you trust in an, an internal, growing, yet imperfect righteousness, that cannot get you into heaven because God's standard for heaven's access has always been a perfect standard. And this is why the divide between Protestants and Catholics is so wide, because they mix justification and sanctification together. They seek uh, justification as internal. And, but, but the problem is, as I just said, if it's internal, that means it's never perfect. And if it's never perfect, you're never right with God until you get perfect, and therefore Catholics need to add purgatory to your life here to get you perfect, to get you into heaven. The good news of justification is that God says you can go to heaven and he declares that on the first day of your Christian life. The reason Paul was so confident that the gospel of justification by grace could save any sinner was because it saved him, the very worst of sinners. If this gospel can save Paul, it can save you. The very best of Paul could never earn the grace of the gospel, and the very worst of Paul could never disqualify him from the grace of the gospel. So wherever you are on the spectrum of so-called good and real evil, if you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sin, God will forgive you and give you eternal life. There's no other gospel that can do that for you. But even as believers, we suffer, we have our highs and lows, we struggle with sin. But never forget, brethren, that on our worst days, we can boldly enter into God's holy presence on the basis of Christ alone. There's no more to give than what Jesus gave on Calvary. There's no greater work to work than Jesus' work on the cross. We can come on our worst day to the Father with, a, with broken hearts, yes. But even broken hearts do not add anything when it comes to the security of our relationship with God. To come into God's presence thinking that you can give him something more than your simple trust in Jesus alone, if you think that somehow it will compel him to accept you, is actually to cut off access to God's grace. That's actually the worst thing that you can do. But on the flip side, even on our best days of living for God, we still need the same gospel in the same degree to come into God's presence. We are never so bad enough that God will refuse our pleas for grace. And listen, we are never so good enough where the gospel is no longer necessary. Because even on our best days and our best hours, those moments are still filled with sinful motives and thoughts and, and sin sinful inclinations. Even in our most faithful seasons, we will never love Christ perfectly. Even our best hours on Sunday morning cannot wipe out our sin from the past. Even our best days cannot somehow cancel out the sins we will commit in the future. Listen to me. Listen to me. We only need Christ to come to the Father and 
we always need Christ to come to the Father. And so we move from the Gospel's divine source in verses 11 and 12 to the Gospel's transforming power in verses 13 and 14. And now, um, well, I'm sorry, we move from that. We looked at verses 13 and 14, the Gospel's transforming power. And now we come to our third point in the morning, the Gospel's most unlikely candidate in verses 15 through 17. The Gospel's most unlikely candidate. And Paul's description of himself in verses 13 and 14 is it, really a, a description of his career as a Pharisee, yes, but it's also a description of him on the road to Damascus. When he was on the road to Damascus to persecute believers, he was believing in his heart of hearts that this was God's will for him. There was no human reason for him to stop doing what he was doing. He had heard the gospel many times before, and this is why he's heading to Damascus to persecute the church. He's not having second doubts about his actions. There is no inner turmoil in Paul's heart whatsoever as he journeys toward Damascus to round up the believers there. Paul is absolutely clear about what he intends to do. He is absolutely clear about why he wants to do it. And so Paul says in verses 15 and 16, that the only reason, the only reason that explains his gospel of grace and ministry is God himself. First, Paul says in verse 15 that his gospel and his apostolic ministry was ordained before he was even born. Paul says, when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, the only plausible explanation of Paul's life and ministry is the result of God's sovereign plan. God had set him apart as an apostle from his mother's womb. And this language here, the setting apart from my mother's womb, is reminiscent of Jeremiah's calling as a prophet in Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah says that God said to him, before I formed you in the inner parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. Paul says in the same way Jeremiah was called as a prophet, God called him as an apostle. Paul's gospel, Paul's apostleship, it wasn't his idea. This was God's idea before he was even born. It was God's idea. And number two, it was God's grace. God had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. It, it, it was, God was pleased to reveal his son in me. Why would God choose Paul, a persecutor of the church, to be an apostle of the church? Could it have been something Paul did? Was it because Paul was circumcised on the eighth day? Did God choose Paul because he was a Hebrew of Hebrews? Because he was the tribe of Benjamin? Because uh, as to the law, he was, he, was, he was blameless? As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church? Did God choose Paul for all those reasons? No! Those were the reasons why God should have sent him to hell. And Paul says, no, he didn't choose me because of that. He didn't transfer, transform me because of those reasons. The only reason he chose me and called me and changed me is 
because of his grace, verse 15. Because it, it pleased God. It pleased God that through Paul, God could display his mightiest power and salvation. No other reason, Paul says. I was the worst of the worst. I was the lowest of the lowest. This, this gospel of grace, it's not from me. I didn't make it up. And verse 16 says, He was pleased to reveal his son in me. Now this, this phrase at the beginning of verse 16, this reveal his son, he's, again, he's referring to his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. And you would think Paul might say to reveal his son to me, but he says to reveal his son in me. You would expect to me, right? This great and glorious vision of Christ. But Paul wants to emphasize, he wants to emphasize that what had happened to him on the road to Damascus involved the most deepest, most comprehensive transformation. This was no superficial change. On the road to Damascus, I didn't change because I, I, was, I experienced this, this mystical experience. No, I changed because God gave me a new heart. Because the Son was revealed in me. Because according to 2 Corinthians 5, 6, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God did that for Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was converted and he was given his commission from the Lord himself. Jesus told Paul that he would proclaim Christ, verse 16, as good news among the Gentiles. The apostles in Jerusalem didn't commission to go to the Gentiles. At that time, the apostles in Jerusalem would, would, never, would never say that. He wasn't commissioned by the church in Antioch. From the very beginning of his new life in Christ, he knew God was calling him to preach Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. There is no human explanation for the gospel of grace minus the works of the law that Paul preached except for Christ alone. There is no human explanation for, for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles as a former persecutor of the church than Christ alone. The only plausible explanation for Paul's gospel of grace, the only logical explanation for Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is that it came directly from Jesus Christ himself. Paul is saying, Galatians, you can trust my gospel. Readers of the New Testament, members of Crosslight Bible Church, you can, you can trust this gospel because I got it from Jesus Christ himself. And it changed my life. It can change yours. And if I need the gospel at my best, there isn't anyone here good enough who doesn't need that gospel. And if the gospel could save me at my worst, it can save anyone here this morning. We move to our last point, and it'll be quick. Point number four, the independent gospel. The independent gospel, after Christ saved 
and commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul did not immediately consult with anyone. He says in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. See, when you're under someone, when you're a, when you're a receiver of a message and you're trying to validate that message, what do you do? You say, hey, so-and-so authority validated my message. I got a, I got a letter here. Uh, this committee said that what I'm telling you is true. Here's my letter. Here's my proof. Talk to so-and-so, and they'll tell you what I'm saying is absolutely true. So you're, you're seeking validation from others when you're at the bottom end of the receiver of the message. But when you're the authority... When, 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 the, when, it, when it starts with you, you say what? You say the opposite. I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't get any validation. I didn't get any corroboration. I, I, didn't, I didn't talk to, uh, I didn't go to Jerusalem who were the apostles before me. I went away to Arabia for three years. And then I went to Jerusalem. Paul says, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. You better believe it. I didn't get anybody's validation. This gospel came from Jesus Christ to me. In other words, Paul's gospel and his apostolic ministry was independent from the apostles in Jerusalem. It came from Jesus himself, and therefore his gospel of grace has no higher credibility. There's no higher credibility than the credibility of the gospel of grace. And what this also means, I guess from a, from a historical perspective, that the documents of the New Testament that we hold in our hands that, that explain the gospel come from two independent sources. The gospel came from the Twelve Apostles, received from Jesus during the three years. And Paul says, I got my, my, got my gospel, not from the apostles, but from Jesus Christ himself. You have these two independent sources of the same gospel, two parties who corroborate the same gospel, but are not interdependent on one another. How in the world did that happen? How did they get the same gospel? Because they got it from Jesus himself. Because it came from him. See, there's so much information and facts and figures. and We, all, we have all these messages from the public coming at us these days. It takes a lot of wisdom and discernment to realize what is true and what is false. And then we have our feelings inside of us. Our feelings tell us what is important or what is not. They lie to us and to try to convince us of things that are not true. Our feelings tell us to be afraid of things like events that God is always sovereign over, situations in life that we should never be afraid of. And then our feelings tell us not to be afraid of things like sin. So what messages should we believe in? What messages should we reject? Paul says in these verses, 
Trust in the gospel with the highest credibility. Trust in the gospel, Jesus told Paul with his own words, and then trust what Paul tells us what those words were in these pages of scripture. Liberals, they like to, liberals like to argue about who wrote what letter and say, yeah, Peter didn't write this, and, and uh, Matthew didn't write this, and maybe, and so-and-so. But when it comes to the letter of Galatians, even liberals say that Paul wrote the letter of Galatians. And we just need to believe whether what he wrote was true. And the, and the question we need to ask ourselves, and the question that Paul is posing and answering is, what else could have changed Paul from the man he was to the man he became? What better explanation could be than the one he has told us this morning? I met Jesus face to face. And so we can trust in this gospel's grace. We can bank on it with our lives. There is no more credible message for the righteous and for the unrighteous. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the, the power that it brings with it. And we recognize by these arguments what you're trying to say about us. We recognize that you recognize about us that we always seem to doubt the, the truthfulness of the gospel. Even as believers, there's, there's a big part of us that, so, that, that we, we somehow we, we just can't believe that it's true. Grace alone? No works of my own? And so every day we need evidence that this gospel comes from heaven, that this gospel is from Jesus, and that we need to dive deeper, to bend deeper, to go deeper in this gospel of grace that frees us, that frees us from the fear of condemnation, that, fear, that frees us from this, this fear that we need to run from you instead of drawing near to you, Lord, may, may, this, may these words convince us this week to go to you, go to you more than we've gone to you before, to draw nearer to you than we've ever drawn nearer to you, and to, and to be joyful, more joyful we have been this past week. Lord, give us joy because of this foundation of justification by faith alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.